Good morning. That surprises me that I'm not one wearing the coat because I'm always cold, but today I'm actually comfortable. That's weird. That's weird. Anyway, um, <sighs> when I was looking at the scriptures this week, I was like, wow, there's so much good stuff in there. But the one that kept coming back to me was the story of Nicodemus. And that's the one that she didn't pick, so that's okay for me to cover that one. Um, I always wondered, why did Nicodemus go to Jesus at night? Was he afraid? What was he hiding? What was, what was going on? Why did he go at night? Anybody have any ideas? There's all kinds, huh? Yeah, he was hiding, yeah. Um, but maybe he also knew that maybe at nighttime he'd have more one-on-one time with Jesus. Because during the day, everybody was like, let me at you, let me at you. And at nighttime, maybe he knew he would have a a private audience, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, he he just had so many questions. He was a ruler, a teacher of the law. So he knew a whole lot. What does he need to know from Jesus? And I was thinking about that. Thursdays, I go to the library over here with my grandson. And on the wall near where we sit. There's this big thing. The Hungry Caterpillar. On the wall there. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, that's Nicodemus. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was like the caterpillar. He was born. He was born. This says it was a Sunday. I thought that was kind of interesting, too. There's a lot of references to Sunday in here. Uh, but the caterpillar was born. Nicodemus was born. And then the hungry caterpillar ate and ate and ate and ate all through all this stuff. Just like Nicodemus ate through all of the law and all of the scriptures. He knew it all. He had it all. All of this. Just like Nicodemus. But then, he says, that night, he had a stomachache. And I'm wondering if Nicodemus had a stomachache. Maybe he had been filled up too much on all the laws and needed to find out the truth. And then it says that the caterpillar chewed through a leaf. And I think that leaf is kind of like when Nicodemus went to see Jesus. He knew he had to clean himself. He knew something had to go. And he needed the right answers. He needed the right things in his life. And Nicodemus doesn't really tell us exactly what his response was to that until a little while later, after the crucifixion. But the hungry caterpillar felt better and made a, a, a home or a cocoon, and crawled inside. And I think that maybe Nicodemus may have done some of that. After he met Jesus and got the answers that he was looking for from Jesus, he spent some time thinking about that and chewing on that and just kind of working that through and relating it to what he had known from before, but just letting it marinate, maybe? And then... After a little while, says a couple weeks, 
the little caterpillar came out like a butterfly. And I think that's what happened with Nicodemus. Nicodemus became a new person after having had his encounter with Jesus. He wasn't the same teacher that he had been. He had met the real teacher. And I think that maybe Nicodemus was born again, just like the caterpillar was born again. It couldn't go back and become a, an egg and a caterpillar again. It had to become something new. It became a butterfly. And I think that Nicodemus also became a butterfly. And after having met Jesus, he was born anew and became a follower. And I think that we can also become butterflies for Jesus as well. When we accept him, accept his teachings, and understand that that's what he wants us to do. He wants us not to crawl around on the dirt, not to eat garbage, but to fly on the wings of the Spirit. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have created us as wonderful creatures, but you've also given us the opportunity to be born again by your Spirit. And we ask you to turn us into that new creation that happens when we are born again. Help us to soar with wings that only you can give and help us to treasure the words that you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. So that is a trail called Angel's Landing. I don't know why it's called that. Um, it's, <laughs> it's in Zion National Park out west. And people actually hike that thing. I mean the ridge. <laughs> yeah, there's some, you can see some people setting out. And there's like a little, it looks like there's a little guardrail kind of at the beginning. But then once you get further up and it gets deeper, there's no, there's nothing to, yeah. I bet, <laughs> I bet it is. Yeah, so there's this thing that if you haven't encountered it yet, you probably will at some point, or you're going to right now. Um, this idea that happens in politics, it also happens a lot, though, in churches, called slippery slope rhetoric. Does anybody know what that is? It's basically when you say, okay, you, if you flex on this one thing, now you're on a slippery slope, and you're going to slide down into some kind of horrible error or sin or something. So, for example, if you have a woman pastor, all of a sudden, that's the first step down the slippery slope to crazy liberal politics, which you maybe already think is already happening. <laughs> Here's the thing. There are actually two slopes. There are two sides of the hill. Spiritually speaking, 
there are two sides of the hill that we're walking on. I have a feeling this is why Jesus talked about the narrow way that's hard to find. And the two sides are lack of self-restraint, lack of self-control that can slide into immorality and not caring what God says in the Bible and, and just going crazy. And the other side is legalism where you take what God says and you focus only on that on the the words and not on the word himself and not on God himself you get sidetracked and you become very rigid in one specific interpretation so you're actually really kind of more about the interpretation maybe than what's what's actually there both of these slopes, if you fall off one or the other, can kill you. And the danger is, if we're on the, uh, if, if I was, let me tell you, I am never walking on that thing. <laughs> but if I were to do that, the danger is, obviously, that if I start to get too close to one side, which I mean, there's just not really that much wiggle room, so I might overcorrect and end up going off the other side. Both unconstraint and legalism kill because, this is why they kill, because they both make our salvation or our lack of salvation dependent on us, and they leave God out of the picture. When Jesus said, which we talked about a few weeks ago, when Jesus said, unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we won't see the kingdom of God, he didn't mean the Pharisees were righteous enough to see the kingdom of God. He meant, you have to be actually more righteous than those guys, and they're pretty righteous. And it's impossible to be that righteous. The Pharisees' righteousness wasn't enough to get them to see the kingdom, and that's why so many of them missed it. Nicodemus seems to have had a little hint that maybe that was true. And so, as Barb told us about, he came and saw Jesus at night and asked some questions and started to get his, his legalism stirred up a little bit. Um, the only way that anybody's righteousness, which righteousness is a, just a big churchy word for goodness, um, rightness, the only way anybody's righteousness can be enough is when we stop relying on our own righteousness and allow Jesus to give us his own. And that's why Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to start over. All the stuff that you had before all the all the things you could take credit for all the all of that stuff you got to start with a new slate with righteousness that comes from God from Jesus himself if you decided i don't know why you would do this but if you decided to try to navigate angels landing you would need skill effort attention you would need to be in shape, you'd need to train a little bit. That's all stuff you can do. 
<laughs> Valium. <laughs> right. Um, some painkillers. Lots of, yeah. But only grace through faith will help us stay on Jesus' narrow way. Let me say, physically speaking, I have no grace. This is why I would not walk on that thing. <laughs> um, I fell down the stairs the day after my cancer surgery and almost ripped my stitches. So, like, that's, that's not, yeah, that would be dependent on me and wouldn't be worth trying. But grace through faith helps us stay on Jesus' narrow way. We don't save ourselves. We don't stay on that ridge by ourselves. We don't save ourselves. God's grace does that. As we keep following Jesus, we will learn to live out, even as the Apostle Paul describes somewhere else, work out our salvation more and more truly. But it's not like we receive salvation by grace, and then we have to get everything right after that so that we can keep it. It's not like rent to own or, <laughs> or, or something like that. Grace is never, ever, 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 ever earned. If you earn it, it's not grace. The goal of a saved Jesus follower is not perfect observance of the law, but be to become more and more like our Savior who saved us. It's a matter of focus. So, like, maybe you don't do this. Ray, don't tell the authorities. But when I drive, I have to keep my eyes on the road. Because if I turn my head to look at something, I am going to go towards that thing. Um, and I'm sure that most of your students do that, especially at the beginning, too. What you focus on is where you start heading. So, if we focus on the law, specifically on the law, and all the specific things within the law, and we just focus on the law, and we focus on getting it right, we will become slaves to the law. The law is from God. The law is good. God gave us the law. But it is not supposed to be our focus. The law is not God. God is God. And if we become slaves to the law, we will be anxious because we won't be able to do all the things that it says we have to do, and we will be joyless, and we'll, we will become judgmental religious people. But if we focus on Jesus, who is God, the Son of God, who fulfilled the law, we will become more like him. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, completely, and he was not a grump. He told some people off. He told off mostly the people who were too focused on the law and not on him and God and the joy and the faithfulness and the love that Jesus was living out. Also, bonus. If, because Jesus fulfilled the law, the more we're like him, the more sure we can be that we are also obeying the law. Right? Make sense? 
cool. Okay, let's talk about Abraham for a minute. Because Tom read us a very teeny little tiny part of Abraham's very long story. But this part is important. This is the call of Abraham that Tom read. It's back in Genesis 12, if you want to look it up again. And God, in this story, calls Abraham to himself, basically. And here's the thing that we need to keep in mind with the Abraham story. Abraham was before Isaac and Jacob. That's his son and his grandson. But he was also before Moses. God did not give the law until Moses, who was like 500 years later. So, God calls Abraham before he has given anybody a law to obey. God basically says, hey, Abram, leave the place you know and the people you come from and go somewhere else. I'm going to show you where that is. Just go somewhere else. God is asking Abraham to pull up his roots, relocate, without a ton of game plan, except that God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I'm going to bless everybody who blesses you and your descendants. In a way, this is God inviting Abraham to be born again. Right? Totally new identity. We talked a few years ago about Abraham where and how he left a culture that was all about like child sacrifice and they were not God fearing people. It sounds like maybe his father was a God fearing person. Um, there's a little bit of story before this where God does something, it's not totally clear, with Abraham's father, and so they've already kind of moved a little bit out of their own culture, but God is basically saying, I am starting a new thing, a totally new people, a totally new plan with you. And so, Abraham, Abram, goes, because God tells him to go. He obeys. But why does he obey? He believed him. Okay, I like that you said that. You were trying to figure out if you were going to say trust or believe or faith. Pretty much, there are those are all different words for something that are, they're not quite the same, but pretty much in the Bible, when you're talking about faith, you're talking about trust and you're talking about belief. Um, faith is belief with legs. Like it does something, or hands. Faith is belief that, that moves, it does something. So, Abraham obeys because he trusts what God says. I'm going to take you to this land, I'm going to show it to you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless people, the whole world through you and your descendants. When does he obey? Pretty much right away. And at least as far as we know, but after he's called, right? He didn't call God. He didn't say, hey, God, I have this great idea. How about if I volunteer 
for you to use me to fix the world. Yep. <laughs> How about that? So he doesn't do that. He, he obeys after God calls him. Why, did, why do you think shall God called Abraham? Yeah, he had to pick someone. <laughs> right. Okay, so he knew who the right person for the job was. I think, though, I would answer this question sort of with Sandy's, but the reason God called Abraham is because he wanted to restore the world, and God so loved the world, like Jesus, or like John tells us in John 3. God so loved the world, he wanted to redeem us, and so he chose somebody through whom to set, out, set in motion this plan to bring all people back to himself. But, yes, Maybe there was something in him, in Abraham already, that God had put in there that made him be the right person. Maybe. The Bible, though, gives us zero hints that there was anything special about Abraham to begin with. At least anything before his story. There are things afterwards. I had one time, when I lived in London, a lot of the people I worked with in London were Muslim, um, and a few years before I left there, one of my friends, my good friend, a uh, Pakistani woman, her brother had just moved to London, and he was fascinated that I was a woman who knew so much about my faith. And so we had this debate about whether Abraham had, because Muslims consider Abraham a prophet also, um, Abraham um, was a prophet, and so this man thought he had something already in him that was good, that was righteous, that made God notice him favorably and choose him. And I said, no, all of that came from God. And I think the passages today back up that. We don't know if God invited somebody else first and they said no. It could have happened. We don't know. Those people don't end up in the story. <laughs> um, it's actually possible that God tried this with Abraham's dad. And they got a little ways, but not quite far enough. And so then God was like, well, I like this family, though, so I'll, I'll, I'll try with his son next. Do we know that Abraham did anything to deserve God's choice and blessing? don't know. The Apostle Paul tells us he did this, except he had faith. He believed, he trusted. That's biblical faith. Abraham was not justified because whether he was a great person or not, which other stories indicate maybe he wasn't the most awesome, but he wasn't horrific. Um, Abraham was justified by faith, only by his faith. 
In Romans 4, verses 1 to, 12, 1 to 2, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Our good works, our obedience, can actually separate us from God when we are focused on our good works and our obedience instead of on God. When we put our faith in our own efforts instead of on God's righteousness, we can separate ourselves from God. The Apostle Paul is saying, if Abraham had anything in him, that he, if he had done anything special, if he had been such a great guy, and that's why God called him, then he could probably be boastful about it, but not before God. If Abraham had been perfect, he would not have needed or received friendship from God. He would have had something to boast about, but not before God. God is not impressed by so-called goodness, which is done apart from him, even if it's done in a religious context. This is hard for us because we want to be good, and we want to know we've done well, and, and we know some people who don't know God, who are good people, and that doesn't feel good to us. We want to know that there's some kind of reward for the good things that we do. And, at least in this life, there is. And I think God does notice the good works that we do, and God knows our hearts. But we are not saved by our good works, either inside the church or outside of it. Verse 5 of Romans 4 says, However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Does not work? Does that mean that we can just like go ahead and do whatever and it's okay because then we'll get extra amounts of God's grace? No, that is not what it means. And in fact, the Apostle Paul anticipates that argument, and he talks about that in the book of Romans 2, but not in this passage. Good works do not save us. Good works have never saved us. Even the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, God's, the son of God's promise, that's the Israelites or the Jews, they were not saved by obedience to the law. In verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. So if we could perfectly obey the law, the whole thing, we wouldn't need any faith. And God would not have made, needed to make a promise to us, and it would be, there would be no point. Here's why. You can obey the letter of the law. Every single thing you can, Jesus talks about nothing's going to be removed from the law, not even the dots on the I's or the crosses on the T's. We could, you could obey every single piece of the law, 
but you would not be perfect because in the Bible, perfection, the kind of perfection that we're looking for, the kind of perfection that allows us to be saved, means fullness, completeness. And being saved, first of all, means being reconciled to God. So I don't know how you can be whole and be reconciled to God if you did it yourself, first of all. But we obeyed exactly right in every situation, and we even did it with respect for God, but we did it from our own effort instead of as an outflowing of our getting to know God, of our learning to love God and learning to trust God and putting our faith in him and having that translate into love for others, we would still not see the kingdom of God and we would still not be perfect because it is only in relationship with God that we can be complete and whole. Perfect. Because we're made in his image. And if we are without him, we're missing something. Like the main thing. He is our identity. James says that faith without works is dead. And that is very scriptural, too. And I don't think the Apostle Paul, a lot of people say the Apostle Paul and James disagreed about this. I don't think they did. James just says it a little bit more practically. But James says faith without works is dead, and we see Abraham obeying God. But I think it might be more accurate to say that Abraham didn't go when God said go out of a sense of fear or out of a sense of even obedience or duty, but more he was accepting an invitation. God extended Abraham an invitation. When God said, follow me so I can bless you, Abraham trusted God and trusted that God wanted, for whatever reason, wanted a relationship with him. And God said he would bless him, so he would bless him. He showed he trusted by following. And that's what I mean when I say biblical faith is belief that does something. We don't do something, we don't act out our obedience, we don't we don't pay attention to scripture just so we can obey and not get it wrong. We do it because we're getting to know God and we're getting to love God and we're learning to trust God and we want to do what God is calling us to do. There's a big difference between duty and fear of messing up and I love God and I trust him even though this thing that he's calling me to do seems crazy like I'm sure it did to Abraham and probably more to Sarah. <laughs> Why are you calling us to do this? Well, you said it, so let's go. Because he believed God. Abraham did a boatload of ungodly things after accepting this invitation. And they were ungodly things even without the law. Like God hadn't given the law yet. Abraham still did stuff that people that didn't know God would probably say was beyond the pale, but he kept returning to God. He kept trusting, to God, trusting God for his righteousness, for God to make him whole. He was saved by trust, 
in God and nothing else. When Jesus says, follow me, it's the same invitation. God is actually saying to each one of us, through Jesus, follow me. I'm going to bring you to a land that I will show you. Maybe not a new physical land, but a new spiritual territory for yourself. He's saying, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, your maybe your biological descendants, maybe your spiritual descendants. I'm going to bless you. And I want to bless the people of the earth through you and through them. This is Jesus' invitation when he says, follow me. The obedience he wants is for us to trust in his love enough to accept it and follow, no matter where he leads us or how much we might mess up on the way. I titled this sermon, We Have One Job, but it's not really a job. We just need to accept the invitation. That's it. So, we are going to have communion, and communion is also an invitation. Um, it is, I don't believe in withholding communion from people who feel that they need it because it is a sign of God's absolute ultimate grace to us. But today, before we take communion, I do want to offer that there might be some people here that haven't actually committed to following Jesus. And so I'm going to pray a prayer that I hope that um, if you haven't done that and you feel like maybe you're ready to accept Jesus' invitation to you, that you will do that. Um, and if you are doing that, if you're praying this along with me silently, um, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And then I'm going to pray a, a second half of the prayer for those of us that are following Jesus who maybe want to um, refocus ourselves and get away from one side or the other of, <laughs> of that ledge. So we'll pray together, and then we'll go into communion. Lord Jesus, I believe in you now. I understand that you have loved me from the very beginning, even though I have never deserved it and have often deserved, deserved your rejection. I am sorry for the ways I have ignored you or rebelled against you. I have come to believe that belonging to you is the only way I can become the whole person you created me to be. So I commit to following you. I'm asking your spirit to make me new, born again. I'm going out on a limb here, Jesus, trusting your grace when all I have is a little faith. But today and from now on, I'm yours. And for those who are already following Jesus but find yourself struggling to stay on the path and not slide into the sin of unrestraint or the sin of legalism, Lord Jesus, this is hard. I love you and I believe in you. I know I am yours already because of your grace. Please make me more like you so that my obedience to you is joyful second nature and helps other people draw closer to you and your grace too. I repent of my rebellious lack of self-control. I repent of my anxious, fear-filled legalism. I rededicate myself to you and ask that you will keep me close to you and make me more like you, the born-again new creation your spirit is already transforming me to be. Thank you, Lord, for your indescribable grace. Amen.